Without the cross, I would not know redeeming love that sought my soul. Without the blood, where would I be? I would be lost without the cross. Grace and peace to you from God our, and Jesus Christ, our Savior. These words express the crux of what Mark is trying to get across in chapters 8 through 10 of his gospel. It is the crux of the issue that we're trying to deal with today and in the coming weeks. What it means to be a follower of Jesus. Crux is a Latin word, which gets us to the crucial point, but more literally, it's the Latin word for cross. The crux is the cross, and the cross is the crux of the gospel. Here in chapters 8 through 10, we have a clearly bracketed point in Mark's narrative, where Mark is pausing from the way that things have been going to the way things are going to go to get us thinking about what it means to follow Jesus. In literary form, he pauses to show us the key pivot points where things move from Jesus' general ministry in Galilee and shift its focus toward Jerusalem. We'll be unpacking these chapters in the next five weeks. We're beginning here with an overview of this whole section and what it's trying to say and how Mark frames this with two blind men, blind men who learn to follow Jesus. Scholars agree that chapters 8 through 10 are the turning point in the gospel. Specifically, you can note a few things if you have your Bibles or if you want to make notes in your bulletin. There's a few things that are worth paying attention to and remembering if you go home and you're going to read through chapters 8 through 10 on your own, which I recommend, as I continue to recommend reading through all of Mark. Read through these chapters and notice these things. First of all, there are three passion predictions, threefold passion predictions in chapter 8, verse 31 is the first one. And Jesus went on his way with his disciples to the, Caesarea, the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And then in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's the first one. The second one is in chapter 9, verse 30. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Then the third prediction is in chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. 
And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So you have those three passion predictions here in this section showing us that this is where the focus is to be for the disciples and for Jesus. But you also notice the journey that's accompanying this. First, he's in Caesarea Philippi. That's verse, the first prediction. Then the second prediction, he's in Galilee. And then the third prediction, he's headed toward Jerusalem. So even the journey is shifting our thoughts and focus and trying to move us toward Jerusalem. In all of this, the central question is in chapter 8, verse 28 and 27 and following, who is Jesus? That's what begins this whole section. Who is Jesus? Passion predictions, moving toward Jerusalem. And yet, in each phase, the disciples are not getting it. They don't understand, and in fact, at one point it says they're afraid to ask him. You know, when your teacher has taught you something that you know you should know the answer to and you're afraid to ask? We're pivoting here in chapter 8 toward Jerusalem, and we do it in chapter 8 and chapter 9 from the Mount of Transfiguration. In chapter 9, Jesus brings his disciples, he teaches them what the cross means, and then he takes them up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so you can imagine yourself standing on the Mount, Mount of Transfiguration, which we'll spend more time in later on. And you can look backwards in Mark, and you can see Jesus was teaching and working in Galilee. You see the people have some sense that of what Jesus is and the miracles he's done, and you're looking back at that. The healing, the forgiving, the confrontations with the devil and the religious authorities and Jesus' authority. But then you can turn on the mountain the other way and look ahead in Mark and see we're going to have to come down from this mountain. And what is it going to mean? Where are we going? What is Jesus doing? So you're looking both ways in chapter 8 of Mark. For today, I want to frame this the way that Mark frames it because I think it will help you understand what is going on with the disciples and what Jesus is trying to get across and what Mark is trying to get across. This whole section is framed with two blind men. You know, they say that a picture is only as beautiful as its frame. Well, I don't know if they really say that. I think they say that. But sometimes my wife tells me I come up with these ideas and maybe they aren't even real at all. Do they say that a picture is only as good as its frame? Well, a beautiful frame helps us understand and highlight what we want to see in the picture. And the framing of Mark here is two blind men. The first is in chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. Now, we read that extended lengthy passage which you're probably wondering why are we still reading we've read about three or four stories here because they all tie together and you really do have to see it all the one with the first blind man here is a strange sort of healing it's strange because it seems to fail on the first attempt jesus seems to fail at the healing He has to do it a second time. 
When we think about the almighty power of God, we expect that he's never going to fail at anything. In fact, we know that for him to heal us would take no effort at all on his part. He is limited by nothing. For instance, if God wanted to heal you of cancer, he doesn't need radiation. He doesn't need chemotherapy. He could do it just with a thought. At the same time, God is not required to heal us of cancer either. It's totally up to him. He's totally free. He can give it to us. He can take it away. And because he's totally free, he can also choose to use earthly means to do it as well, if he wants to. He can use medicine. He can use radiation. He can use doctors. He can use prayer. This is what it means for God to be totally free. Jesus can use mud. He can put his finger on someone. He can spit on someone. Or he can just use his word. He can even not use anything at all and just with a thought, a man can be healed. And this is a significant contrast between the first healing, which takes spit and a second try, and the second healing at the end, in which Jesus doesn't even say a word and the man is healed. What this is teaching us is that the miracles mean more than just the miracle. When Jesus does something different in a miracle, it means he's trying to tell us something more than just the man received his sight. Now, he could be telling the man what it means to be patient. We might not be healed all in one try. It might take some time. Maybe God is teaching us to be patient and keep praying. But you can tell by the context that there's something more going on. The context is everything. Just a few verses earlier, Jesus tells his disciples, Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not get it at all? They have seen what Jesus has done, but they're not really seeing what Jesus is doing. They have short memories, as we all do. Chapter 8 begins with Jesus having compassion on this crowd, feeding 4,000 people, and leaving seven basketfuls of fragments left over. When Jesus sets out in the boat, he tells his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And what do they think about? Their first thought is, we've only brought one loaf of bread. We don't have enough for everyone. Jesus must be telling us something about bread. They're only focused on the loaf, not on Jesus. Do you not remember, he says. How soon we forget the blessings of the past because of the troubles of the present. We forget what Jesus has done, what he's capable of. We get zeroed in on this one thing that we think needs to happen, this one problem that we can't seem to get to go away, and we only see one loaf. And Jesus rebukes his disciples. They are not seen. And that leads them into the story of the man at Bethsaida. Bethsaida is the hometown of Peter. 
It's a place where Jesus has been on many occasions. It's a place where he's done many miracles. He's well known. But he doesn't want to spend any time there. In fact, they have to bring this man to Jesus, this man who is blind. The disciples have to bring the man to Jesus, and then the disciples are the one begging Jesus to heal the blind man. Jesus doesn't heal the blind man right away. Instead, he takes the man by the hand and leads him out of the village. Again, why is Jesus doing this? Every point matters. We don't learn much about this man. Who is he? What is his name? Does he even want to be healed? Is he even asking to be healed? It's actually the disciples who are asking for it. We don't know much about this man. All we know is that he's brought outside the city and that Jesus attempts to heal him and it takes two tries. Jesus spits in the man's eyes. Would you like Jesus to spit in your eyes? Oh, that we could all have Jesus spit in our eyes. I mean it. And then he lays his hands on him. But it doesn't work. It's only a half healing. And Jesus says, can you see anything? The man says, I can see people, but they look like trees walking about. Did the miracle work or not? Can the man see or not? His sight is half blurry. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a preacher from the earlier 20th century. He has a book called Spiritual Depression. And in this book, he points out in chapter 3 one of the main spiritual conditions of believers. He says they have a sort of blurry sight in the world, and he touches on this specific miracle. He calls them miserable Christians. He says, I'm concerned about those Christians who are disquieted and unhappy and miserable because of this lack of clarity. It is almost impossible to define them. You sometimes talk to this type and you think, this man is a Christian. And then you meet him again and you are thrown into doubt at once and you say, surely he cannot be a Christian. If he can say a thing like that or do such a thing as that. Whenever you meet this man, you get a different impression, and you are never quite know whether he is a Christian or not. You are not happy in saying, one, that he does see or he does not see. The disciples have come to this point, and they have this spiritual condition where they're seeing, but it's still blurry. They're not clearly seeing who Jesus is and what he's done. They don't grasp it. Jesus has to do a second healing. He lays his hands on the man a second time, and now the man is healed. And there's a threefold completion of this. The man opens his eyes, his sight is restored, and he sees everything clearly. A threefold completion. Now things are crystal clear. But Jesus warns him, don't return to the village. There appears to be some sort of leaven 
working in that village. They have to bring the man out of the village, and they don't want the man to go back into the village. There's something that Jesus does not want to return to in Bethsaida. Perhaps they're relying on Jesus for his miracles too much. They're looking only for the loaves of bread, the glory ministry. But that's not why Jesus came. He wants his disciples to leave those crowds, to get out of that thinking. And this leads us then to chapters 8 through 10 and the discussion on discipleship. Who do people say that I am? So do you see what's happening? Do you see how this is arranged on purpose to lead you into understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus? It's not about the loaves. It's not about the glory. It's about the suffering. It's about repentance. It's about denying yourself. It's about seeing Jesus and following Jesus all the way to the cross. Jesus keeps on moving through Galilee toward Jerusalem. He needs to go there and he needs to die. And he says, take up your cross and follow me there. That means we too must die. We must go the same way, a way of suffering. To become last of all and servant of all. And that's what takes us then to the backside of this section in Mark. Where you have the second blind man. On the backside, there's a second blind man, a beggar. Jesus finishes his sayings, and just before he reaches Jerusalem, just before he has the Palm Sunday entry, there is blind Bartimaeus. A blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, is sitting by the roadside. And when he hears that Jesus is coming, he begins to cry out. Now notice the differences in these two blind men. He begins to cry out, and he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Not the crowds, not the disciples, it is the man who is begging. And many rebuked him, telling him, be silent. But he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. Now Jesus could have called him himself, could have gone to the man. But instead he tells his disciples, this is your job, call the man here. Bring him to me. And they say, take heart. Get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he's leaving everything behind in his urgency. This poor man who couldn't afford to buy a second coat springs up and he comes to Jesus and he says, and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Notice the difference with this blind man. He has a name. He's known to Jesus. He's known to the readers. He's a believer. He has a whole other emphasis of zeal that the first blind man does not. He's sitting along the way, which is part of this journey phrase, as Jesus is making the journey to Jerusalem, and he's crying out 
And Jesus doesn't need to touch him. He doesn't need to do it a second time. He doesn't need to do anything. Even with just a thought, Jesus heals him. This is the backside for the disciples to understand discipleship. On the front side, they don't get it. They need the second type of healing. They need more instruction. They're needing people to bring them to Jesus. On the back side, as we get closer to Jerusalem, we see the desperation. The need to beg and cry out. The need to plead to come to Jesus immediately and not waste any time. And Jesus tells him to go his own way. But the man doesn't go his way. The man immediately recovers his sight and he goes on Jesus' way. Follows Jesus to where he's going. There is a sort of blurriness that we can go through. I've been through it. That blurriness where you just can't seem to see Jesus clearly. The circumstances of the village have blinded you. You've been surrounded by it so long, you just can't see clearly what Jesus has done and what he's continuing to do. And Jesus wants to lead us toward Jerusalem, where the closer we get to understanding the cross, the more we are desperate in coming to Jesus, depending on him totally for everything. We are beggars. Chapters 8 through 10 go into depth of this, and we'll get to unpack those chapters more in the coming weeks about what Jesus is doing, what it means to follow him. But for now, we are thinking only about the presence of Jesus today. Where are we? What is he saying? Martin Lloyd-Jones concludes this chapter, and he says, What then? Well, the last step is to submit yourself to him, to submit yourself utterly to Jesus, as this man did. He did not object to further treatment. He rejoiced in it. And I believe that if our Lord had not taken the further step, he would have asked him to do so. And you can do the same. Come to the word of God. Stop asking questions. Start with the promise in the right order. Say, I want the truth, whatever it costs me. Bind yourself to it. Submit yourself to it. Come in utter submission as a little child and plead with him to give you clear sight, perfect vision, and to make you whole. And as you do so, it is my privilege to remind you that he can do it. Yea, more, I promise you in his blessed name that he will do it. He never leaves anything incomplete. That is the teaching. Listen to it. This man was healed and restored and saw every man clearly. The Christian position is a clear position. We are not meant to be left in a state of doubt and misgiving, of uncertainty and unhappiness. Do you believe that the Son of God came from heaven and lived and did all he did on earth and that he died on a cross and was buried and rose again, that he ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit In order to leave us in a state of confusion, it is impossible. He came that we might see clearly, that we might know God. He came to give eternal life, and this is eternal life, 
that may, they may know thee, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is the crux of following Jesus. Without the cross, I would not know redeeming love that sought my soul. Amen.